Welcome back to the Unique Needs Podcast. So today we'll be talking more about uh, when the kids are born, what kind of things as a parent, right, as a new parent to look out for, so watch out for. So things like developmental milestones and, you know, different gender of the child uh, presents us with different needs that they bring in. So given that, um, when the kids are born, um, we have to be cognizant of, um, you know, our genetic, genetic makeup. So if you have any things going on in your own genetics or your spouse genetics, um, then uh, you have to be aware of that. And the child would pretty much come out um, pertaining um, to both genders. So having said that, uh, the biggest thing I tell parents is to get familiarized uh, with the developmental milestones. What it means is at each stage of the child's life, what milestones should they be hitting? What kind of expectations, what kind of things they should be presenting? For example, um, you have walking, talking, uh, you know, potty training, all those things are developmental milestones. So when I look at, when I speak to parents and I look at the child history, I always ask for whether the child has met their developmental milestones in a timely manner, right? So whether they walk, talk, things like that. And what it's doing is somewhat ruling out of developmental disabilities, right? So for example, autism and uh, intellectual disabilities and you know developmental delays of any kind like speech and um you know you have your fine motor and gross motor skills and all that so things like that are critical um to see um when uh, as a parent when the child is growing up and you know, a lot of times when they, they're not talking, uh, make sure their hearing is tested, tested as well. So, uh, because a lot of times if you can't hear anything, you know, it's like speech, speech that can present in speech delays. I'm not a speech pathologist, but definitely something to be mm, watchful for when uh, the child is born. Also, um, you know, what kind of what kind of toys should they have or what kind of environment should they grow up in? And what are our expectations from the kids? So I always tell parents early interventions are critical. So if the child is younger, right, and, and they are presenting with minor speech delays and and if you take care of them early on, they don't exacerbate into something bigger later on in their lives. So having said that, I mean, same thing with vision and same thing with, uh, you, know, you know, their weight and their, uh, you know, uh, how well they are being trained for, um, like, for example, potty training and all that. So things like that, we have to really pay close attention to. Also eating habits. Uh, over the years, uh, our, our children's eating habits uh, have been very um, all over the place. So be very cognizant of what you are you are eating and what you are feeding the child. You know, and the the debate between the formula and the breast milk, and of course, uh, most of the medical community and mental health community would 
uh, agree with the with the idea that the breast milk is far superior, right, for the brain development of the child. So make sure you are, you know, if you can, uh, if you you're able to do that, that would, that is the optimal way of going about it. Formula is it's kind of as a backup thing. So if there's some kind of a medical thing with the, with the mother or if uh, there's some kind of hindrance uh, that are not allow- allowing them to, to have the breast milk route, then we can go for the, for the formula route. But what happens is if the child is breastfed most of the time, whatever the mom is eating is going through the milk. So uh, the the palate is developed early on for the children. Something to keep that in mind because um, as, as the kids get older and if you are trying to expose them to different foods that you eat like seafood or vegetables or, you know, if you're vegetarian or vegan or whatever it is, uh, maybe um, your child is kind of acclimated to that kind of a palate before they are grown up. So you have to be very careful of that. And it has a lifetime impact. So be very cognizant of that. And it's not, I know we are turning into parents of convenience uh, with the digital tablets and, and and fast food restaurants and just to be very cautious of what um, you're eating and what you are feeding your child. And kids tend to grow up and I've seen them growing up uh, longitudinally, um, their eating habits, if you see them in school, what they're eating and, uh, you know, what they talk about, what they have, uh, you know, eaten at home over the weekend and all that um, it, it's kind of surprising to me how parents are so like nonchalant about feeding their kids and themselves too so if your eating habits are better then your kids eating habits would be great as well and that trans you know less sugar when they're younger because sugar um it's it's kind of uh, inhibits them uh, from tasting other foods so if you expose them uh, to sugar early on i've seen even toddlers with lollipops and all that if you if you if you expose them for a long amount of time with sugar then um, their palates are not used to eating uh, more um, foods that like a umami taste food so so long term, that that has an impact on it, and also, also um, I've seen a lot of people uh, with younger, younger and younger uh, kids with tablets and and you know their brain functioning and all that. It's um, it's it's very much impacted by what they're watching right around them. So they're like what we call them, the kids are like sponges at that young age. And whatever they're seeing is like they're absorbing it around them and in front of them. So although it seems like a in a short run, seems like a great idea, right, to give them a tablet to uh, just look at it. And then, uh, you know, it's just kind of a, quote unquote, a babysitting tool, right, for a little bit. 
but what happens is that they did some research in uh, general of pediatric medicine a while back, about four or five years ago. About, I call it a SpongeBob study. So what they did was uh, they showed kids two to separate cartoons, and th those are little three to four-year-olds. Um, and uh, they showed them two different kind of cartoons. One was SpongeBob and one was uh, Caillou, another cartoon that has a longer story to it, about two 15-minute segments. And what they found was that kids who have um, watched uh, a lot of SpongeBob has a uh, 10-point uh, differential between their executive functioning um, and uh, how they process information over time than kids who watch Caillou. And uh, what the results were uh, in a layman terms um, was that because the other um, segment uh, was 15 minutes longer and kids had to sit there and, and really kind of calculate how the segment turned out, really like uh, um, gave them the ability to sit and absorb the whole storyline than the frames of a cartoon switching every 10 seconds. So um, how does it translate into real world? People ask me all the time and the the answer to that is very simple. If you take that child and put them in a classroom setting, um, and the instruction usually lasts about 10 to 15 minutes, and uh, the child who's exposed to um, frames that flips too fast in video games or in, in even the cartoons like uh, SpongeBob, it, uh, the frames are moving so fast that um, their brains get bored, right? We call it a bored brain. So when they're sitting in a classroom setting, they're not able to follow their teacher's instructions for the 15-minute period of time. Having said that, keep that in mind when you are playing uh, digital media for your children on how to select it, what kind of things they should be watching, um, and, and why they are watching it right? The reason behind it. So sometimes some are moral cartoons, some are educationally relevant cartoons, some are historically relevant cartoons, some are just like nothing. So it's the um, um, same thing like eating, right? It's like brain food when we are watching something. So brain food has to be as relevant to your child and to your philosophies of life than what your child is watching. So just be cognizant of it and moving forward, just make sure that your child is watching what they're supposed to be watching. So they're prepared for to transition into more of instructional environment later on when they get older. So going back to when the kids are born, they can be, uh, you know, they, they, different kind of unique needs, right, they can bring to the table. So you have your developmental needs, right? You have autism, you have intellectual disability, you have <clears throat> emotional disability, right? So attachment issues start when kids are very young, things like that. Um, and so some, sometimes they have physically handicapping conditions. So um, Every child is very unique, and even in a household of like three, four, five kids, two, even two kids, one child would be very different than the other. And parents always ask me, why is one child is so different than the other? And uh, it's just inherent on, on their temperament, on how they are, right? So some kids are easy to soothe and some are not. So 
inherently and some kids are more clingy and some are not so inherently what happens is what's happening there is is they're completely two different products even though uh, they might share the same genetic component right so things uh, it's not being frustrated right we always say oh you know it's uh, so and so uh, you, you know my second child is just like his uncle billy whatever right so but that's just that thing that what we say but the reality of the thing is the situation is that every child is very different and they do bring in unique needs even our neurotypical uh, kids um, their needs could be very different um, so you know i mean we often forget our emo the emotional component of uh, attachment and all that right so it's uh uh, we had, they did a lot of studies in, in, uh, you know, in, uh, Romania and all that. And the, the, the biggest study that on attachment was that, uh, um, the kids need to be held, right? So it's like, uh, the study was done on, uh, orphanage, right orphanages and what they found in eastern europe and what they found was the the kids were just uh, in the 50s um the kids were just uh, fed and uh, uh they were just uh, the diaper changed all day long so but they weren't held so what they had was and that was also done with harlow uh, study where it's so important to hold your kids and hug them and show them the physical touch component of the love not just feeding them and making sure that their primary needs are met so more there at, at the young age the primary needs are also uh, the touch component of it so that is very important there was another study done in japan and what they did was in that study was you know how in the western cultures we uh, have a baby's room set up and it was on on mostly co-sleeping and sleeping in close proximity to the parent and what that study looked at was <clears throat> they did a longitudinal study it was about 24 years or 25 years it was two and a half decades or so and what they saw was the kids in japan uh, tend to be uh, closer to their parents and they said why is that happening so what they found was that it goes all the way back into the child's childhood when the child uh, you know how we make separate rooms for the kids and and, and dress them up and and in pinks and blues and this and that and but they are not in the same room as the parent is sleeping so what they found was the child when they cried they cried louder and harder in the western culture to get the parents attention at night or during the day when they're in their room um uh, on the other hand the japanese kids I didn't have to do uh, the crying too hard so the attention to from the mom or the caregiver was so so fast so the time lapse was very short so if the child is in the same room um it's 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 a lot easier right so <clears throat> for the parent to get up and tend to the child so things like that and then what happens was over time that longitudinal wise um it became uh, evident that the kids who received uh, immediate um uh, immediate um, hugs and immediate holding of the parent and immediate care uh, was able to build a 
very um, nurturing bond with their um, caregiver for um, forever. So, so something to keep in mind when you are making the rooms for the babies and deciding how you're going how you're going to um, have uh, how do you picture your child living with you. Now, I know a lot of people are scared about co-sleeping and dangers of co-sleeping and all that that is probably uh, your your prerogative of how you want to approach that um but the proximity component is important to remember don't make the rooms too far away from your own room or things to that effect and uh you know i mean it it is important and the primary if somebody was asking me last week about potty training and what's the best way to go about potty training and and i said it's it's a more of a behavior modification thing so so there are three um primary reinforcers that you have to be uh aware of so the primary forces are uh, your sleep your food and your touch so those are primary reinforcers so when you combine those reinforcers with the secondary reinforcers like praise and stickers and so on and so forth then you are able to modify the behavior of any um, you know human beings or animals so so for example uh, a primary reinforcer if you um, if they're potty training, you can have a little bit of reward set up, and then you can give them a high five with the sticker. So you what you're doing is um, a little jelly bean or a little bit of food or something, and then uh, attach that with um, a high five, which would be your touch, or a pat in the back would be your touch, and then you kind of give them a sticker or some kind of a secondary reinforcer right so things like that can help you it's more of a pavlo right Pav pavlovian and, and more of a behave skinner and uh, going back to more behavior rest on how they view um the uh, the behavior modification component so that that's that and when we're going back to when we have um when we are monitoring our babies, we have to be very careful because their vision is developing later. So their vision, they can only see certain colors when they are very young. So their uh, vision is very close by. But as they get older, uh, the eye contact you have to watch out for, the language you have to watch out for, um, and make sure that they are speaking uh, well. Uh, they are, uh, if you, they have siblings, they are relating to their siblings very well early on. Um, you know, imaginative play, uh, playing with other kids, that is very key. That's a very important social component of the kids. So make sure they're exposed to that. And, um, you know, as a parent, you have to continuously watch out and speak to the pediatrician immediately. If there's something off about, you say, oh, well, I don't think my older one did that. Or um, according to this developmental milestone, um, he, he or she should be hitting that marker in this category, right? So, uh, and they're not doing that, like walking, if, they start, uh, if they're not walking at the right time. So not to overly worry about it, but just to be cautious because early interventions are the best interventions. And we always say that. And so if you are able to do that, that's great. So um, uh, 
are we ready to parent a child? Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, nobody, there's no book to say, oh, this is how you um, parent because uh, there can't be in a sense where um, every child is so unique. So universal parenting tips might be okay, but individual parenting tips are very different. Um, you have to have uh, guidelines, right, for your own self, and then you develop guidelines for your child. So it, I give an example always, give an example of a tomato cage, right? It starts all small and then it gets bigger and bigger. People who uh, do a lot of gardening can relate to that. And uh, what, what it only conceptually means is like a funnel kind of a deal, right? So the plant is smaller, the funnel is closer, and as they get older, the funnel gets bigger and bigger. And that, those are your rules and expectations and boundaries, right? So as they're younger, uh, you are more cautious about everything. Thing. And then as they get older and older and older, you have to give them more autonomy to grow into themselves, into individuals that they are. So, you know, when the kids are younger, those are the kind of things you have to watch out. Make sure the developmental milestones are being met. Make sure that their nutrition is, is, is well taken care of. Make sure they're sleeping properly. A lot of times, Parents don't have um, rules about um, bedtime. And this is very concerning to me because I see uh, a lot of kids in my, uh, in my circle um, that, who have no uh, bedtime. And what's happening there is most of our brain is developing while we are sleeping and at, at a younger age and especially when you're very young. And if you don't have the quiet time or the blue light where um, and they don't have any uh, discipline about their circadian rhythm component, then they will end up having a lot of issues. So you'll see a lot of tantrums in kids. You'll see kids who um, have serious difficulties regulating their emotions. So sleeping component is key component. Uh, People ask me all the time, how many hours should my child sleep? Uh, I would say about 10 to 11 hours. <clears throat> And they said, no, I thought it was eight. Well, eight is somewhat of a young adult and adult maybe uh, um, when you turn 24, 25. But most of the people should be sleeping about, uh, especially kids, very young kids sleep a lot in their beginning automatically. But as they get older, like four or five years old, uh, their sleeping patterns start um, aligning with their parents' sleeping pattern, and which is troubling to me because... Um, uh, a lot of parents that I know of uh, have trouble uh, being disciplined about sleep. And sleep is sometimes more important than eating because it creates a lot of um, pressure on the mind. So let's say if you have lack of sleep and you get up the next morning, uh, your memory is impacted. There's tons of research on it. Uh, your emotion, emotional response is impacted. You're more irritable. So just imagine that in a child, right? So if they're not sleeping properly, uh, they're missing the first part of the school day, right? That's just the least of my concern. More of my concern is their memory component there that they'll have trouble remembering information from one aspect to the other aspect. So that kind of a thing is is critical for us to be aware of. So have serious, uh, very strict uh, 
time, bad times, making sure that you are able to um, adhere to it and build their circadian rhythm based on that. And make sure you address that issue with them, uh, even though when they're younger, the importance of sleeping. And a lot of times the kids are not getting as tired. So that goes back to the physical activity, right? So how much physical activity they should have during the day for them to be tired enough to go to sleep at night and make sure that you're not starting new conversations around bedtime and you're not, um, you know, tell uh, uh, you have not, not a lot of blue light, not a lot of TVs and computers and iPads and all that around kids right before they're about to go to sleep. So sleeping is kind of a more of a habitual thing and you're training your circadian rhythm to just go in a rhythm, rhythmic format where you're a disciplined sleeper. So, uh, so nutritious food, uh, developmental milestones, uh, sleeping component of it, and the social aspect. Uh, we have to teach them a lot, and a lot of times we have to teach them through our own actions, right? So how we are behaving, they are just looking at us and seeing how they should be behaving, the expectations for them. So can have two separate expectations from yourself and from your child. So whatever your expectations are, whatever you're modeling, you have to be able to uh, have the same expectations from the child. A lot of times I've seen parents using curse words or or using derogatory language or demeaning or you know lying about something in front of their kids and then they turn around and they have a different expectations from their child and that's not fair to the child and not fair to you because then you are um, creating something that is not realistic neither for you nor for the child. So things like that, the social emotional component, and we'll 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 talk more about in the next podcast about um, what is uh, raising a perfect child means, right? And the main difference between boys and girls, and why are they so different? And and you know, gender and uh, gender identity and research, what does that say? Um, we can also talk a little bit about uh, you know having. Um, What's the right environment to raise a child? Or is there such a thing like that, right? So things like that uh, are very critical. So having said that, I'll uh, speak to you uh, guys next week. And if you have any questions, uh, you can always email me at uniqueneedspodcast at microsoft.com. I also have a Facebook page and uh, a Twitter account. All right. Thank you. This is Dr. S.